This is John Shannon from Radio Free Galisteo, and today I'm speaking with Michael Mito Webster. He is an expert in ecology, conservation, philanthropy, nonprofit management. He's a professor of practice in the Department of Environmental Studies at New York University, and he's also led efforts to connect cutting edge science to protecting species and ecosystems in the wild as the executive director of the Coral Reef Alliance. He's a program officer at the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and an academic scientist at Cornell University and Oregon State University. Today, we're gonna to be talking about his book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Professor Webster, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. The Rescue Effect. Obviously, it's it seems very timely with regard to what's going on <laughs> with our environment and uh, I guess a, a number of other things that are happening in the, in the world. What is the rescue effect and how does it impact us? Yeah, so the rescue effect, as I define it in my book, is this tendency in nature to rescue itself. And if you look at when an organism experiences a change in the environment, there's a whole bunch of different things that kick in automatically to help it deal with that change. Collectively, all those things that turn on are the rescue effect. It's important because it means that most species, most kinds of organisms on the planet are really pretty good at dealing with a changing environment. And as humans are changing more and more the environment, this becomes very important because it means that a lot of organisms are gonna be able to deal with the changes we're creating on their own, at least for the time being, um, which is good news in conservation. Um, however, there are some organisms that really are struggling for which the rescue effect just hasn't proven strong enough. In those cases, uh, it, when we've been, uh, I guess, clear-headed or thoughtful about it, we've we've been able to help some of those species. And then on the other hand, we've absolutely eliminated them through our own action. How does human interaction come into this? Yeah, so the rescue effect is what happens in nature all on its own. And um, while powerful, it's not all powerful. The other piece of good news in conservation is that if people want to, they can do a lot to try and help things persist. And you know, if we look to the rescue effect itself, we can see how nature does it and we can learn from nature and say, okay, well, we can try and boost these species uh, in a whole bunch of different ways. And if you look at what's happening in conservation today, the toolkit for doing this is actually expanding and people are developing new tools and new ideas. Some of them are very powerful for helping species that are struggling the most. So even when we get to the point where we are at risk of losing something, we generally still have a lot of options for what we can do if we choose to. Give us a brief example of what can be done. Sure. I um, actually just last weekend um, gave a talk at the American Chestnut Foundation's annual symposium. And the people there are working to try and restore the American chestnut tree, which declined over a century ago due to yeah. a disease that had um, come in from Asia and wiped out all the trees across the East Coast. People have been working for more than 100 years to try and figure out ways of bringing these trees back. They first hoped maybe there were some naturally resistant trees that they could breed and use as, as seed stock for replanting. That didn't work out so well. One of the next things they did is they started crossbreeding these American trees with different species of chestnuts from Asia because those Asian species had an ability to fight this new disease. And they thought maybe they can take a little bit from this species and mix it with that other species and create something new that could resist the disease. There's been a little bit of success in that arena and a lot of advances in how to do that kind of selective breeding. 
But most recently, you know, sort of the biggest milestone in this process is that scientists from um, SUNY Syracuse have started genetically engineering new chestnut trees to have one new gene from wheat that helps them fight this disease. And with this one new gene, there's a new strain of trees that are doing better and can sort of fight the disease to a detente. They're actually seeking permission right now from the USDA to start planting these trees more broadly. And if so, we can, it'll be the first example, certainly the first example I know of, of using genetic engineering for conservation. And so now what this could open up is a whole new avenue in conservation for helping species adapt by using the tools of genetic engineering. Which I think is uh, absolutely fascinating and, and clearly very cutting edge. Okay, that also has been the stuff of uh, a number of science fiction films that end up in disaster when we create something that we don't expect uh, by manipulating the genetics of an organism. Uh, I think probably a chestnut tree is fairly harmless in this regard, but do, do we do the same thing with uh, uh, animal species in, in order to help them survive? Uh, well, it's already being proposed, especially if when some species are uh, subject to something like a particular disease that they're having difficulty fighting. You know, I don't think we're anywhere near using tools like that to sort of build you know, broad and many different traits in organisms. But in narrow cases, I do think it's something that we're likely to see more of in the future. And as you point out, in this sort of arena, there's some potential for controversy there. And there's potential for people to disagree whether this is something we even should be doing. I think that's a good thing in conservation because what's happening is the world is changing so fast that we're being pushed in new directions and looking at new kinds of tools. And we need to be having a public discourse about, well, is this a good idea? How far are we willing to go? Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, in general, the I guess the, the organic food uh, movement would be really against a lot. I mean, you know, non-GMO, is uh is is the the their moniker really uh, uh how do we how do we get around that or how do we encourage more organic you, yeah you know, yeah so organic, organic and gmo standards are very different um, uh -huh. they're, they're measuring for different things in the process and you know at this point actually a lot of our food in this country does have uh genetic modifications in it whether we realize it or not um, for the most part, I don't think that the, you know, those sort of science fiction risks have borne out, um, right. but it is a different kind of technology. You know, if you look at a lot of the other things we do in um, our particular agricultural practices, we do a lot of what amounts to genetic modification when we mix different species together or when we breed certain strains for certain characteristics, we're creating new combinations of genes that have ever existed before on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so anytime we do that, you know, you could theoretically say there's some sort of inherent risk in doing that. But if you look globally, we don't see many examples of where that's borne out. Um, so, um, but there are fair questions. Okay. Uh, so in this book, you, you describe six different rescue effects. Do you want to go through those with us? Uh, or, sure. So, is, that give, is that giving away too much? Not at all. Maybe we'll pick a couple of them and see how it goes for starters. So okay. the idea is, again, that you've got this overall thing that I call the rescue effect, which is uh -huh. this inherent tendency in nature for things to persist. If you break it down into its constituent parts, you can see these different processes that are at work that help it happen. You know, one of the simplest ones and the one that actually the, the, the name rescue effect was first applied to is called demographic rescue. And in this case, if you imagine you've got a small population of some species in a place, 
um, when populations are small, chance events can cause them to disappear, maybe a storm or a drought or something like that, and all individuals in the population die out. Well, you've lost your population in that place. Demographic rescue is when there's another population nearby and some individuals just immigrate into that population. And so if your population is declining and you get a few individuals from a neighboring population, they can rescue that local population. And we see this happen all the time in nature where you've got big populations and small populations and you've got individuals moving back and forth and they help populations persist over time, even when something bad happens, like a wildfire or like a drought or something. Which we have so uh, in spades here in New Mexico. Exactly, exactly. So that's one example. Um, one of the other examples that I talk about in the book is what I call geographic rescue. And this is something that's happening everywhere around the world right now, which is species tend to live in places that have favorable conditions for them, temperature, mm -hmm. rainfall, soils, etc. And what's happening, especially with climate change, is that the conditions that species are experiencing in a particular place are starting to change. And at some point, they might change so much that it's no longer suitable for that organism to live there. But one of the things that they can potentially do is move to new places that look more like their old place used to. And so what this means for many species is that they're moving poleward. In North America, that means a lot of species are moving from the south further north, tracking the climate that they, that they, that they prefer to live in. In the mountains, this often happens where species move from low elevation to higher elevation, tracking the climate that they're looking for. It's gotten to the point where there's a whole scientific conference called Species on the Move that does nothing but look at examples of how species are moving for where we're predicting them to go in the future. Um, and this is something that's affecting enormous numbers of species around the planet. It's also nothing new. If you go back in time, for example, to the last ice age, a lot of North America was covered in ice. Right. When the ice retreated, it just left bare rock. Well, how did all that bare rock become forests and meadows and lakes with all these organisms that we're accustomed to seeing in those places that have been glaciated? Well, they moved. They followed the climate at the end of the last ice age to new locations. So this is something that's happening everywhere on the planet right now. And some species are very good at it. They're very good at you know effectively finding these new locations and setting up shop. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. Global warming is, I guess, you know, the, the big change in our, uh, um, in our world at the moment. How is that affecting either of these types of uh, uh, rescue effects? So global warming is changing everything for nature. If you think about any organism or any ecosystem, it exists in a particular set of conditions. And when those conditions change, it shifts to something else. That's very common in nature. That, that's what happens everywhere. And so what's happening with climate change is that climate is obviously, climate change is obviously affecting temperature, um, uh, but it's also affecting rainfall patterns, wildfire patterns. It's affecting chemistry in the ocean. 
Um, and, and what's happening is that species everywhere and ecosystems everywhere are finding that the rules are shifting, mm -hmm. that what was there before is not what's there now and it's not what's going to be there in the future. So the rescue effect is getting triggered everywhere simultaneously, basically, and all species are having to adapt. Uh, you know, the, the geographic rescue is one of the best examples for thinking about climate change, because as you imagine, that is sort of a slow, steady process of shifting you know, conditions. Species can respond by moving to those new locations. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that's starting to happen in nature is that species are starting to evolve as well. If they are accustomed to living in a certain environment and have certain capabilities that make them successful in that environment, when the environment changes, it's possible that we'll see them change as well and change in their genes in a way that makes them more successful going forward. The more we look at that, the more examples we're starting to see in nature, and we can expect a lot of that in the future. So evolution is, has been a process that's you know we're all taught takes millions of years and uh, this before any real change happens is that accurate or does it happen a lot faster than we think that's an excellent question because you're absolutely right our image of evolution is this thing that takes place over millions and millions of years and it's this slow accumulation of changes that lead to like different species over time that image is not wrong um that's how a lot of evolution happens in in this case, what we're talking about is a subset of evolution. It's an area up called evolutionary rescue. And this is evolution that can happen very quickly. And the reason it usually can happen quickly is there's sort of two reasons. One, if you've got uh, a species that has a lot of diversity to it, say there's some individuals that can live at relatively high temperatures and some that live at relatively cool temperatures, and those differences are related to their genetic composition. When the environment changes, some of those individuals would be better and others will do worse. If you get you know, uh, an event where the ones that aren't as well adapted die, the other ones survive, you've had an instantaneous evolutionary event because right. the population that remains looks genetically different from the population that was there before. If they then reproduce, then the next generation is also gonna look different. Mm -hmm. And so when you have species that have a lot of diversity today and selection is happening on that existing diversity, it can happen quite quickly. The other place where it can happen quite quickly is with uh, organisms that have really short life histories and can reproduce in big numbers really fast. So things like bacteria. This is how antibiotic resistance builds up. And so that's a very practical example. This is how uh, the evolution of COVID is happening because mm. that is new evolution, new mutation, but these are kinds of life or it, whether or not you consider viruses a kind of life, they are self-replicating. And what they're doing is that every once in a while there's a mistake and some of those mistakes are advantageous. But that's really only relevant for things that are very fast reproducing. I guess that question ties back to our involvement with changing the, the genome of uh, different species. And I guess even the possibility of doing that with ourselves. You mentioned that humans have a role here and they should not be passive what are some of the other things apart from i guess messing with our genes uh, that we we can do sure yeah you don't always have to go straight for some sort of genetic manipulation that's a relatively <laughs> extreme thing to do you know as we talked about earlier the, the biggest thing we can do is slow down the rate of change because these processes all have limits to how fast they can go and so if we can slow down things like climate change, potentially even eventually reverse climate change, it's gonna give a lot of species a lot more space to catch up on their own. But when we can't do that, we can boost any of these six rescue effects. And in some cases, it's not that hard. We can move individuals into a population that's gotten small. We can um, 
move species from one location to another if they're where they used to live is not suitable and they're having troubles getting to someplace that's new. You know, we can breed them in captivity and release them into the wild if we want to boost populations. There's, there's a long list of tools that we have available um, if we want to try and help species uh, adapt to the changes that we're creating. And these all these tools are being used. There's examples of, of each and every one of them, many examples. And some of them we're getting better at. You know, in some places there are some big technological advances, especially around the area of trying to help species evolve. So your answer clicked off the idea or the uh, the fact that a lot of these things end up becoming very political uh, and you need agreement on first of all there are people that don't even agree that there is climate change happening more and more i think there are people that do agree and then further uh, for for example replacing species here in the west the mexican gray wolf population is is being well is, is growing again but it's bumping up against uh people who do ranching so what what do you suggest we do uh either i know this is not strictly your your bailiwick but uh you know how do we overcome some of these uh disagreements and uh and the political uh aspect to these kinds of uh needed change yeah so i don't claim any specific knowledge about the mexican gray wolf and so i don't want to wade into any of the details on sure. that but the point you're getting at is that there's a lot of social choice in what we choose to do or choose not to do in conservation, in the environment. And I've worked in that arena for a long time. These are hard decision points where you've got different people who have different values and different interests that are coming you know, to a head. You know, as a scientist myself, one of the things I think the best we can do is try and offer as much information as possible about what the options are and what the potential you know risks and rewards of those different options look like you've touched on an issue that tends to be particularly sensitive which is the reintroduction or the support of top predators in ecosystems and you'll see in my book one of my chapters is about tigers in india which have you know it's you you think it's challenging living next to wolves imagine living next to tigers right these are really you know serious predators that have the potential to cause serious harm, not just to livestock, but also to people. And it does create um, the potential for conflict between people and wildlife. And that's not gonna go away anytime soon. Um, fortunately, you know, we do have social processes for trying to deal with and solve some of these problems, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kid you. It's, it, it, it's not gonna make it easier because there are genuinely different values involved in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yes, agreed. Can you speak a little bit more about the tiger chapter? <laughs> <laughs> sure. The tiger chapter was the first chapter I wrote. And one of the things in the book I tried to do was not just like deliver this as a biology textbook. I wanted to invite people into what's going on in nature. And I decided to do that through stories. And so each of those chapters are built around stories about different places and organisms. And the tiger chapter was the first one of these I wrote. And it was it was very fun for me because I was able to track the history of this particularly interesting tiger that I had seen in India a number of years ago. And he had traveled between two different nature parks through farms and high densely populated areas. And imagine what this would be like to like wake up in the morning and see a tiger walking through your yard. 
Um, yeah. He traveled like a hundred miles through these through these places and wound up in another park. And in doing so, he was demonstrating things like demographic rescue, like this movement between places that affects their populations. He also might be bringing in new genes into that population, which is uh, genetic rescue in that system. Um, but what he really did was, I think, sort of symbolize what's going on in conservation, which is in a lot of places, um, parks are getting small and isolated. And we need to be thinking about how do we um, uh, deal with that for wildlife? How is how are wildlife able to move from one place to another and maintain those kinds of connections, which are which are really important for what's going on biologically in those systems? And you know, India is dealing with this in a way of trying to figure out how do we manage parks for our tigers while at the same time trying to manage against conflict with people and trying to keep these in sort of these two different goals at the same time, which at times come into conflict with each other. Everybody loves a good tiger story. So <laughs> I'm glad it's in there. What's one of the most important things you want people to take away from this book? Sure. So I've worked in conservation for a long time. And one of my observations is that people often have sort of a gloomy outlook on nature, that we hear lots of stories about the problems that are happening, about species that are at risk and the you know what's going on in the world. And I don't want to detract from the fact that you know that's largely true there are species at risk there are problems but i think it's worth also recognizing at the same time that nature is incredibly resilient and it's really good at dealing with environmental change and when we look across the planet right now you know the evidence is that that, that many many more species are adjusting to the changes we're creating than the ones that are in trouble the ones that we know of that are in trouble are actually a small minority of mm. the diversity of life on earth and this is because of the rescue effect. The rescue effect is strong enough. It's working for the vast majority of species. And so we can celebrate that and feel good about the fact that nature is dealing with a lot of what we're throwing at it. And at the same time, we can take seriously the challenges that we know we have and we need to address. The book is The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Professor Michael Meta Webster, who we are speaking to right now, is the author Michael, where can you find this book as of today? As of today. So the book is out as of today, and you can find it wherever books are sold. You can start if you want. You can look at my publisher's website, which is Workman Press, uh, or you can just search up The Rescue Effect, and you'll find links to things like Amazon where you can find it. Hopefully, you can also find it at your local bookstore. Well, we will start pointing people in that direction. Any final thoughts today? Uh, yeah, my final thought is listen. We're at an interesting place in our world where things are changing very quickly, but not all the news is bad. Nature is adapting to the changes that are happening, and we can help. All right. That's a very positive way to finish off this fascinating discussion of life on Earth. Michael Meta-Webster, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.